to Season 3 of Royals, Rebels, and Romantics. This season will feature more peeking behind the scenes, pushing back at assumptions, and listening to the voices of the past. We'll have fun and fascinating guests and welcome your involvement in what we chat about. It's all part of Shaking Up History. We start with a focus on our favorite birthday girl, Queen Elizabeth I. All month, we'll consider this multifaceted woman who went from being baby heir to discarded daughter and from being suspected sister to Queen of England. Enjoy our journey through Elizabeth's England. Welcome, everyone, to this wonderful edition for the podcast. It's a wonderful edition because our episode, because I am here with Siobhan Clark, who has just written this beautiful book, Gloriana, Elizabeth I, and the Art of Queenship. And if you don't have it yet, we'll talk a lot about it and how you can get your hands on it. It is just one of the most beautiful books in my collection. So thank you, Siobhan, for joining us and being a part of this discussion. Oh, you're most welcome. I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you. Well, I want to start by sort of mentioning one of your previous books. Of course, I'm surrounded right now in my little office with your previous books, channeling you and your brilliance. But one of them was Henry VIII and the Art of Kingship. So that idea Mm -hmm. of the art of monarchy really seems to be something that you're interested in. And I wonder if you could just talk to us Mm -hmm. about the idea of the art of kingship and queenship and how the art is so important. And I I would say maybe especially in the Tudor reign. Um, What do you think about Mm -hmm. that? Yes, I do think it was especially important. Um, Excuse me. So first of all, um, we became interested because um, I'm actually working with an art historian, Linda Collins, and we thought it would be nice to put our skills together um, and produce something that maybe hadn't been done before, because obviously there's plenty of biographies of Henry VIII and Elizabeth I, but we couldn't see that anyone had approached it through their art. And we just thought that This might be something different, just a fresh approach. And aware, being aware also that a lot of people have an image of Henry as the um, bloated tyrant um, of the later reign. And everyone knows about the six wives and all the famous things about Henry. And um, a lot of people might not know about his art collection, that he was a really enthusiastic collector and he how he enriched the Tudor court about all the paintings and the tapestries that mm-hmm. he had and how he could use that in, in his kingship because he wasn't a collector of art for art's sake. I have to, have to say that. Right. Um, it was all about what art could do for him. Anyway, so that was how how it got started by by looking at Henry and doing this. We did this book, uh, King and Collector, mm-hmm. and then it was actually Alison Weir who suggested for for the next book. She said it would seem really logical to to follow that up with the same format about Elizabeth. And yeah, and we and our publishers loved the idea. So that's what we decided to do. And again, it's just a fresh approach to of looking at Elizabeth. It is, 
it is very much um, like a biography um, with all the important themes and elements of her reign and character um, explained in the book, um, but all the time using paintings as a gateway to these themes. Well, and that's so wonderful. Her paintings are so extraordinary and we feel like we've seen so many, but having read this, I now understand them so much better. And so I I just am so excited Mm -hmm. about that. So how would you say Elizabeth often um, sort of channeled her father or mentioned her father, his image seemed to be very important to her. Do you think yes. she learned lessons from the from his relationship with art that she put to work in her own reign? To a certain extent, um, the idea of image and magnificence was important to all Tudors, even Henry the Seventh, mm-hmm. who was a who's a very famous miser, spent a lot of money on magnificence. So. That was something that they all had in common. And certainly um, Elizabeth um, projected, was very interested in projecting her image in exactly the same way as her father. They were both very good at image building, but she did it in a different way. Um, Henry VIII used his great wealth uh, to build so many palaces. He had more than 50 great houses. He was able to have the most amazing tapestry collection. He owned more than anyone in history, apart from the Pope. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Elizabeth Elizabeth didn't have that kind of money. Henry VIII had left an empty treasury. So she has to build her image in different ways. And one of the ways that she does it is she, can, she uses the arts um, to build her image. So <clears throat> she will become the muse for writers, musicians and artists throughout her reign. And and then it turns out to be a golden age of literature, music and art. And she's right there in in the centre of it. Um, The other difference is very obvious. Um, uh, A male monarch has a royal image that is centred on leadership and um, military prowess. Uh, Henry was very uh, keen to show himself as a chivalrous knight. I mean, that was his ideal of himself. He was Mm -hmm. very chivalrous, jousting and tournaments and all that sort of thing. Now, Elizabeth obviously can't do that. So instead, she uses her femininity and she becomes the unobtainable lady of courtly love. So that is very much part of her of her image that she uses. And, um, and of course, they both use artists. Uh, Henry's very fortunate in having a genius, uh, Hans Holbein. Right. And then Elizabeth um, also is fortunate because she comes to have really the first great English artist, native-born, uh, Nicholas Hilliard, who um, she patronises and uh, is able to, you know, use him, um, among other artists, uh, to promote her image, and then with the um, expansion of printing, it's it's actually easier for Elizabeth to even to spread her image. You know, people knew what she looked like, or what or what she wanted them to know. She also controlled her image, of course. Right, right. Um, and then towards, and then later in the reign, um, her sergeant painter George Gower is entrusted with the task of destroying any images that you know the Queen doesn't approve of. 
the idea of the level of control is so interesting, and I want to get back to that. But before we do, can we talk a little bit about Nicholas Hilliard? Because I think we um, are more familiar with Holbein and Henry VIII's use of Holbein than we are of, of the importance of Hilliard in Elizabeth's court and in her image making. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, he is very interesting because um, he's, he seems to come almost from nowhere to to be this great artist. And it's a bit of a mystery <laughs> as to how it happened. So because um, so he's born in 1547 in Exeter. So he's from Devon. Um, his, both his father and grandfather are successful goldsmiths, and that's what he trains to do. It's likely that he came across miniatures while he was working as a goldsmith because they would be enclosed in gold settings. Okay. But what we don't know is, and we know that he was a talented goldsmith, and, and at the time they actually earned, generally they earned more than painters, more than artists. So it was a very good career. So the only reason for changing career would be a, a passion for, for art, which he obviously had. But we don't know how, how he trained. He claimed that he taught himself. <laughs> so um, I'm afraid, yeah, art historians are a bit, you know, not, we don't really understand how he became so accomplished. But he did. And through having some very good contacts, he was able, he was put in touch with the Earl of Leicester who was the greatest art collector in England, as well as being the greatest favourite of the Queen. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, it's through, it's through Leicester that, that he meets the, the Queen. And, and then she sits for him and he becomes um, portraitist to the Queen for the next 32 years. It's amazing. He was still creating images of her up until her death in 1603. Some um, portraits, what what they would call them portraits in great, which are normal sized portraits. And then, of course, there's the famous miniatures, which they called little portraits in little. And that's what we really know Hilliard for today, because his, his miniatures are so exquisite and he's very famous for them. Anyway, he, he did very well and he became um, established many, many patrons amongst the English nobility. And then and he was also known abroad as well. His fame spread. So that's I would say he's the first English artist to be um, known here and abroad. <clears throat> What's um, surprising, though, is that uh, for all his success, he actually died in near poverty because Art was still not a lucrative career, even if you're someone at the very top of their of their game. And he, and the other thing was that he always lived beyond his means, you know, uh, dressed extravagantly, etc. Um, so yeah, he had a long career, and he was always working, even in the Jacobean court after Elizabeth's death, but um, never really. You know, when you think about what art great artists earn today, <laughs> right? Um, you know. He didn't end up a rich man. But when he died, he left us almost 200 miniatures that survived. So there's a great, great many of them by Nicholas Hilliard. Do you think he really started the appreciation for miniatures? They really seem to, um, there seemed to be much more of them during his time. There does. I mean, miniatures existed before. Henry VIII had miniatures and mm-hmm. he had artists uh, who could produce them. Uh, Lavina Tierlink, mm-hmm. uh, 
worked at Henry's Court. Um, and um, they, you know, so, so they were, they, they knew about miniatures, but they just became really popular through, through the work of, of Hilliard. And also it kind of ties in with the Elizabethan thing about courtly love and <clears throat> miniatures were thought to be very intimate. They were so small, you could hold them close to your heart. Okay. They're very romantic. Okay. And gentlemen in Elizabeth's reign become more like that in a way, rather than being warlike, they become a bit more sort of poetic, more romantic, and uh, it kind of just fits in with the Elizabethan theme at the, at the time. The idea of courtly <clears throat> love, and yeah. certainly Elizabeth leans way into that as a way of managing all of these male courtiers, and so... That is nice. They could have yeah. these little images of her with them close to the heart all the time. That fits perfectly. Oh, yes, that's that's wonderful. Now, I don't know how, how much you see of the symbols in the miniatures. Maybe you could talk about both the, I love that idea, portraits in great and portraits in little. But what are some of the common symbols in Elizabeth's paintings um, and what do they represent? Because they're they're just like a book, you know. There's so much in them. So tell us some of the symbols. I know. Well, probably the most common thing that people will notice is the amount of pearls that mm-hmm. she wears. They symbolize chastity. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also they're also associated with the Greek goddess of the moon, who was a virgin. And of course, you get lots of um, symbols of um, of virginity in Elizabeth's uh, portraiture. Uh, the sea, the sieve or sieve is also a symbol of virginity that comes up. Um, mm-hmm. Fruits and flowers, where you see them, such as in the Hamden portrait, represent youth and fertility. You will often see the crown and scepter, which of course signify monarchy. A globe represents imperial ambitions, and and the famous one is in the Armada portrait, where her fingers are actually on the globe. Yeah, and she, they've just beaten the, the Spanish Armada. Her fingers are on the globe of the world, and interestingly, her fingers are resting in Virginia, where the oh. where yeah where the year before the first English child had been born in the New World. Yeah, okay. so that's so that's representing imperial ambitions beyond mm-hmm. England. Um, the the colours that she wears, black and white, uh, represent chastity and constancy. Um, what else? The Tudor rose obviously refers to the Tudor dynasty, but it mm-hmm. also has medieval um, connotations with the Virgin Mary, and mm-hmm. that's obviously really important to her image that because she, she's the virgin queen and um, then she wears jewels that have symbolism the pelican uh, portrays motherly love to her subjects because it was believed that the pelican in times of hunger would peck at its own chest and feed its blood to its young so this is elizabeth as as mm-hmm. mother of of her the phoenix, a mythological bird, which um, there can only be one at any time, so it's it's unique and it's eternal. So again, this is mm-hmm. this is what Elizabeth wanted. The ermine, and of course, there's a famous portrait of her, the ermine portrait, and it's a really sweet little white ermine. This little creature appears in the portrait right, with a right. crown for a collar. Now that the the idea was that the ermine was so pure 
that it would rather die than soil its pure white coat. And and so where and also wearing it was restricted to royalty and the very highest nobility. So you see, you you might see the ermine. Okay. Uh, you might see gloves, which represent elegance. Olive branches, branches symbolizing peace. Um, often things that she is holding or wearing. So, for example, a fan in the Darnley portrait right. that was most likely given to her by the person who commissioned the portrait. So that's those are things you can look out for. Um, courtiers would often give her presents and then commission a portrait of her with the gift so oh, that those okay. in the know, yeah, and the idea was that those in the know would then associate the person with that gift and, and, and the fact that they had a connection with um, Elizabeth. Right, and that she cared for the gift enough to use it in this portrait. That's quite a coup for that person yeah. who commissioned it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and, uh, and then sometimes, um, like for example in the Ditchley portrait, you see stormy clouds or sunshine. When you see weather, um, that's indicating that the Queen um, can almost can control the weather mm. um that she can bring she brings sunshine out of stormy clouds and that kind of that kind of thing so so th- those are some ideas of things to um to look out for that is wonderful and of course speaking of the storm and how she's bringing the sunny weather i can't help but think of the rainbow portrait which you know has that little phrase no rainbow without the sun but uh, I know, it it, yeah. it it has so much imagery and there's so much to it. And of course, the excitement of finding, you know, the dress and everything. But can you talk to us a little bit? Because that one has the fascinating eyes and ears. And I, lips. Know, I know. It's, it, it's, yeah, it's definitely, it is. And it's very beautiful. It's visually beautiful. When you walk into the hall at, at Hatfield and see it, it's, it's stunning. It's so mm-hmm. well preserved. The colours mm-hmm. are just gorgeous. And, um, and of course, she's portrayed as young and beautiful, even though she was 67 right. um, at the time. So there's this interplay of signs and symbols, which we still can't be sure of all of it. But <clears throat> certainly the eyes and the ears <clears throat> are reference to her secret service. And we, we, we also don't know exactly who painted it. Uh, there are various contenders. There's um, Isaac Oliver, Marcus Gearhart. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but we can be pretty sure who commissioned it is one of the Cecils, most likely Robert Cecil. You know, and that's why it's still at Hatfield, it's still at their family seat. Right. And, of course, Robert Cecil um, and his father were um, instrumental in, in setting up the Elizabethan Secret Service. So mm-hmm. this is this painting is all about the um, the uh, the network um, of uh, spies and agents who hunted down uh, what they who they perceived to be Catholic assassins, and they and Walsingham of course needs to be mentioned, and they just worked and devoted their lives really to keeping Elizabeth safe. Right. And, and the idea in the painting right. is that she sees and hears all, or rather her secret service do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a fascinating uh, painting. And the rainbow is a message of hope. So it's it's interesting to me, 
in this portrait. So she has the rainbow. She's actually holding the rainbow. It's faded now. That's the one thing that has faded just a bit. But so she's representing that idea of hope. And for the Protestants, like the Cecils and like Walsingham, she really was the hope of the Protestant nation continuing. So there seems to be a little bit of religious meaning as well. Is that right? Do you think I'm reading too much into that or does that seem fair? No, no, that is fair. And the rainbow also represents a biblical covenant between God. Um, It it represented it between God and Noah Mm -hmm. um, in the Bible. Mm -hmm. So this this is suggesting Elizabeth's ability to mediate between heaven and earth. Okay. And interestingly, the, the rainbow was again employed as a message of hope. I don't know if it was in, in the US, but over here in the UK, the, the rainbow was used as a message of hope during the pandemic. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting that mm-hmm. that continues to be. Okay. Well, and yeah. and I those those you've mentioned a couple of the later portraits, the Ditchley portrait, which was later, and also... Um, the rainbow portrait, which is one of the latest during her lifetime. Is that right? The rainbow's in 1601. Very late. Yeah. 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 It's right at the end. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about sort of the transformation of her image from an early portrait we have Mm -hmm. of her, uh, you know, that early one when she's a princess and she may not have had yeah, you know, she wouldn't have known at that point she would grow up to be the queen. She was, you know, an unlikely candidate. But there is so much yeah. in that beautiful young portrait and how how we see her reign sort of play out over the portraits. Can you sort of talk us through the transformation? Well, actually, I'd go back even a little bit earlier than the one I know the one you're talking about, the one at Windsor Castle in that red mm-hmm. dress. Um. Prior to that, there was a family painting that Henry commissioned in 1545 that shows the dynasty, and um, you've got both the Lady Mary and the Lady Elizabeth there. And um, the artist isn't very good. Um, they, you know, it's not. I wouldn't say that was a brilliant painting of Elizabeth, um, and she's also pushed out to the wings, just like her sister. And and the, yeah, and you look at that and you think, that, you know, there's no way this little girl is, is is going to be very important. You know, she's clearly right. pushed to the side. Right. Um, but <clears throat> the reason I mentioned the painting is because if I was able to ask Elizabeth a question about one of her portraits, that actually would be a contender. And the reason is that in that family portrait, she's wearing an A necklace, right. which she had inherited from her mother. Mm-hmm. And um, we just don't know. Historians are divided. We don't know whether she risked um, upsetting her father in wearing it, which could have been, you know, uh, could have been a bit difficult, right? Or was it, or was it added in Elizabeth's own reign when she was queen? I'd, I'd like to ask her that. Did, did she wear that? <laughs> That's great. And I will tell you, I've stood in front of that portrait at Hampton Court for very long periods of time, just mesmerized by the idea of her wearing that pendant of her mother's. So um, that is a really powerful image to me. So I'm I'm so glad you mentioned that. And what a wonderful 
question to ask her. I always like to think, what would we ask her? So that's great. Okay. Yeah. Fabulous. I'd, I'd ask her that. Um, but getting back to the one of Elizabeth as princess, the one at Windsor. So she's wearing this gorgeous um, red gown, very rich clothing. Um, the painting shows her status as a king's daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's beautifully dressed, um, and but looking obviously very demure and importantly very academic. And she benefited from, uh, although she wasn't as important as her brother, obviously. Mm-hmm. She benefited from a very good education. Thank goodness Henry wanted his daughters to be educated. Right. She had the best tutors. And um, her one of her tutors, uh, Roger Ascham, uh, said at the time uh, that this portrait was being done, he said, her mind has no womanly weakness. Um, oh, her perseverance okay. equal to man and her memory long keeps what it quickly picks up. And you, this portrait, I think, is about... <clears throat> Elizabeth, the academic, she's holding a book. She's even got her fingers inside the book as if she's just been interrupted from reading right. to, to, to sit mm-hmm. for the portrait. I would say that that is the, the message in that portrait. This is a very studious, uh, very serious young young princess. Right. And, and lovely just at the beginning and not really sure where her life will take her. That at that point, at that time, you know, there's no reason to think that her brother's going to die. Um, he wasn't a sickly child, it, just right. that he died of tuberculosis at 15 and a half. Right. Um, so, yeah, Elizabeth didn't know where her life was heading. Right, right. And she continues not to know during both her brother and sister's reigns. Now, I like, yeah. I like to think of that portrait in that beautiful red dress and then the Hampton portrait, which is also of Elizabeth in a red dress. And I was lucky enough to see this portrait. It was at the Yale Center for British Art in um, 2020, I think, right before everything closed down. I went up and saw it. And it is breathtaking in person. I just could not tear my eyes away. But it's a different kind of message. So can you talk to us just a little bit? Because this, again, this Hampton portrait is rich in its symbolism. So tell us a little bit about the background and the colors and all that. Yeah. So, um, well, first of all, you're very lucky to have seen it because it's privately owned. I know. So there's no guarantee where, when or where it's going to go on display. It's it's in private hands. Right. We did have it for a while at Hampton Court Palace. And it's showing us um, a young queen, um, very slender, uh, very attractive. It's the real Elizabeth. You can see her real hair. She's not wearing a wig. Right. In a beautiful dress, this tiny, tiny waist. Um, the image, the painting is full of images of fruits and flowers. This is a young woman who is fertile. That's what's important. And the painting was done for the royal marriage market. So this is exactly the kind of image that would appeal to all her princely suitors and admirers um, around Europe. That's what it was done for. But interestingly, there is something um, curious in that painting because she's wearing, um, I mean, she's holding, I think it's a carnation, um, a flower, which is a symbol of betrothal. But she's also got flowers pinned to her bodice. Um, There are roses Mm -hmm. and there's also 
what looks like acorn leaves. Now, the acorn leaves may be a playful reference to Robert Dudley. (laughs) So, um, yeah, and at the the time she's posing for this portrait, she is actually in love, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) but with a man that she can't can't marry. Okay. Oh, that's interesting because it looks like it's promoting her as – a very eligible bachelorette to be desired by all of Royal Europe, but maybe that yep. private joke with Dudley there. That is, that's fun. All right. And then when she transitions into, and, and there are many, many portraits in between. I just think this is kind of fun when she transitions into the Virgin queen, um, when the marriage mm-hmm. offers are not coming as quickly or whatever, um, that's where we really see the pearls. But can you speak, you mentioned this, but can you speak a little bit more about the sieve? And we know the pearls, but are there other emblems specific to her virginity where she starts to really celebrate that? The sieve, uh, now that idea comes from ancient Rome, and it's based on the story of Vestal Virgins who... um attended a sacred flame in a temple mm-hmm. and they were they were all very very pure and one of them um to prove her virginity one of the vestal virgins she carried water in a sieve mm-hmm. <laughs> without spilling a drop so that was just a famous story it, it actually appeared in uh, petrarch's 14th century poem the triumph of chastity so it's a tale of a vestal virgin a maiden carrying water in a sieve and it was very. This was a very popular story at the time. Elizabeth would have read it probably in Italian, mm-hmm. uh, so people would know. People at the time would know the story, and they know that the sieve um, equates to virginity. So El- Elizabeth, there's quite a few of these um, sieve portraits. And what I find interesting is um, the man who uh, who commissioned the first one was actually one of her. Um, favourites, Sir Christopher Hatton. And he appears in it in the background. We can identify him Mm -hmm. because he's wearing um, a hanging sleeve with a golden hind on it. Now, he was also a patron of Sir Francis Drake, and that's why Drake renamed his ship the Golden Hind. Anyway, um, Hatton was really jealous of the idea of the Queen marrying the Duke of Anjou, who was courting her at, at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, so it's likely that he's commissioning this portrait to emphasise her virgin, her virgin state um, and, and, and her identity um, as, as a maiden. <clears throat> so it's, it's a very striking portrait because she's wearing black mm-hmm. and then she's got the, you know, the, and the white um, ruff and it, yeah, but a very beautiful, very beautiful portrait. And, and as I say, there are, there are many of them. There were many copies. Right. And it's, it's a wonderful idea. And actually um, there is a really lovely sieve portrait at the Folger Shakespeare library um, here in the Washington DC oh. area. Uh, the Gower sieve portrait is at the Folger. And when I worked at the Folger, I was, able to see that. So for me, it's just this little, um, you know, transformation through these red dresses, because she's wearing this beautiful red dress in that one as well. So when she's a young woman in oh. a red dress, and then when she's this eligible bachelorette in the Hampton in the red dress, and then 
in this sieve. So that's just my personal you know, sort of transformation or travel through Elizabeth. All right. So um, as we come to the end of her reign, one of those big moments toward the end is the Armada portrait. And I wonder if you could tell us that's yeah. probably one that, you know, a lot of people have seen. Um, tell us some of the um, symbolism and the imagery in that Armada portrait. Well, I've already mentioned about the globe mm-hmm. and the colony of uh, Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's important is that this is her moment of triumph. Right. But but it's important to know that her ambitions stretch beyond Europe. And she's looking to secure a global position for England. So it really is the beginnings of um, imperialism. and. It's unusual because she has these beautiful hands, which are often very well displayed. But in this portrait, they're not adorned with any jewellery, probably because not to detract from the reference that she's making to to her new territories in in the new world. Um, The other thing about the Armada portrait is just like the coronation portrait, it, we seem to be looking more at a dress than a human being. Yeah. You know, you obviously you can see her hands, her beautiful hands, and um, the face is obviously very mask-like by this time. Mm-hmm. But but really, it's the dress that dominates the portrait. It's just massive; these huge padded sleeves, and it's very ornate. Um, and it's a really good example of how um, Elizabeth uses uh, dress um, in her queenship, and it's making her look. Big, just like Henry had this very big, bulky um, appearance. The, the, this enormous dress um, in the Armada portrait suggests it's making her look larger than life. Um, but like Henry, um, she's not wearing a crown, and he 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 doesn't wear a crown in his portraits. But Elizabeth's por- Elizabeth's crown is there in the Armada portrait. You can see it in the background just like you can um, in the Darnley portrait. Right. Um, and then importantly, um, in the Armada portrait, you can see the um, Spanish ships on the left, you see them sort of arriving, and then on the right, you see them being wrecked by storms. So um, that's reminding everyone that not only did the English have a great victory, but it was God's will, and God finished off the Spanish ships by sending storms right. uh, to destroy them. Right, right, and and God kept Elizabeth safe. Right now, yeah, yeah. <laughs> one of the interesting things about this portrait is there are several copies we still have of the Armada portrait. Yeah. Why would there have been multiple copies? of this image there were there were several copies of lots lots of her images because people wanted paintings of elizabeth mm-hmm. there was a market okay. for the paintings and in artist studio at studios um they knew that they could always sell paintings of elizabeth so it was just yeah it was just com- a, a good commercial thing to do make lots of copies of paintings of the queen people wanted it and and especially portraits like this, which right. have such a strong political significance. Right. I, I, I mean, most, yeah, you know, can imagine a lot of Englishmen would, would very, you know, as such a great victory as well. They would be very pleased to have a, a copy of, of a wonderful painting like that because Elizabeth is representing England. Mm-hmm. This isn't just about Elizabeth the person. 
It's about England as a nation. That seems really important. And I think if you were a courtier and were hoping to have a visit from the Queen and you could display this in your large manor house, that would be quite a good idea. Now, you mentioned mentioned how carefully she controls her image. And I think we see it with the Armada portrait. And this was a, a painting she would have allowed to be copied and and sold and distributed. And she probably would have loved to have several of those out there, but she was very careful with the way she was portrayed. How did she accomplish that? How did she manage the distribution of her image? Well, she ceased to sit. And we think that the last portrait done from life was the Darnley portrait. Okay. Um, so that is about 1575. Um, she's in her early 40s. Elizabeth um, still looks attractive in the Darnley portrait, mm-hmm. but it's likely that, you know, she had smallpox in 1562, and it's likely that her face was slightly marked uh, right. by smallpox, and she has started wearing makeup. As, the t- as time goes by, her face will become in reality, it's going to become white with the ceruse lead makeup and it will, will look mask-like. And so it does in the paintings. After the Darnley portrait, that the, the face in the Darnley portrait was used as a pattern for subsequent portraits. So that's a way of controlling it by saying this, this is the face pattern and keep using it. And then time goes by, but in portraiture, the Queen will not age. She's frozen in time with this portrait. And as I mentioned earlier, um, when they were aware of um, portraits that hadn't been approved, they, uh, you know, her sergeant painter was given instructions to find them and destroy them. Okay, right. So if there was something that didn't show her in a positive light, that was not allowed. (laughs) Okay, that's, that's, Wonderful. And you can see because she wanted to project this image of youth and that she would last forever. She didn't really have a succession plan, so she needed to last for a really long time. And that was all part of her messaging. And as you've talked about how important it was to project that magnificence, that royal magnificence. Now, there is a really famous Jacobean portrait after her death that shows her um, sort of worn down and with her head in her hand. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about her, um, her image with the Jacobeans or with, you know, after her death, when it was maybe allowed to do that? Tell us a little bit about that. So the the new regime comes in in 1603. The crown is passed to James VI of Scots. Mm-hmm. And at first there's great rejoicing because um, towards the end of Elizabeth's life, you know, some people felt they'd had enough of a, a female monarch and that she was getting too old and she, she was losing um, a lot of popularity towards the end of her reign. But it's not long into the Jacobean period when people are looking back to the good old days mm-hmm. of Queen Bess mm-hmm. um, and thinking, you know, maybe the Stuarts aren't so good after all. And uh, so that's all part of looking back okay. with nostalgia okay. to this uh, reign of Elizabeth. 
But what's interesting about the portrait you describe is, yes, she she is shown looking old, mm-hmm. and she's also shown looking terribly tired. You know, she's got her head in her hands, as if she's reached the end, and the burden that she's carried for so long. You know, and it was a burden, the, right. this burden of queenship, and she's mm-hmm. carried it on her own. <clears throat> and somehow, you know, she's got to the end of a very long reign, and suddenly, yeah, she just feels very, very tired, which she would have done at the end, especially when her friends were dying. Right. Um, she'd lost Cecil, she'd lost um, a lot of her closest female friends. Right. Um, and that, I think, I, I like that portrait as well, um, although I, probably Elizabeth probably wouldn't. <laughs> but it, it does seem to ca- capture, you know, how she felt at, at the end of her reign. And mm-hmm. and it's quite macabre because you've got, in that portrait, you've got um, Old Father Time mm-hmm. on one, on looking over one shoulder and you've got Death looking on the other. And it's it's almost saying that, you know, Elizabeth has been so successful, so victorious. You know, she can beat the Spanish, mm-hmm. she can beat the Catholics, but here is one enemy she cannot defeat, and and this is death, and he's finally come. That's a really poignant, I think, a poignant painting and a beautiful way to describe it. So thank you. And I often think, I look at that one, and I think in a way it's too bad Elizabeth emphasized her youth so much because she had worn herself out. She had survived. She outlived Philip and she outlived the Pope who excommunicated her. And she really earned all those wrinkles and, you know, through that burden she'd carried for so long. And so there's something I think kind of wonderful of her wearing herself out in the service of her people. All right. Now you did tell us one of the, um, portraits you would ask Elizabeth if you were able to ask her a question um, about that A necklace in the family portrait. If you could ask her about another, so can you give us another question you might like to ask Elizabeth um, about a particular portrait? Well, we don't know who painted the rainbow portrait, so that, that would be interesting to know yeah. who you know who, who did it um but but the most exciting question that anyone wants to ask elizabeth is what actually happened with robert dudley <laughs> you know i said she was wearing the, um, the acorn leaves and mm-hmm. um, she you know what what happened okay. <laughs> just what was it that's all about what really, <laughs> that's what everyone really wants to know um well, and we so know <laughs> he commissioned some, yeah. right? I mean, you know, he was very much in her life throughout her life. So, hmm. oh gosh, yes, and and did things that were really cheeky, like um, commissioned portraits of himself and the Queen, and then hung them side by side as if they were a couple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, at uh, Kenilworth, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, that was actually when we were doing the book um that was one of the surprises for me because I hadn't I I hadn't realized that he was such a great collector and such a great patron and just how many paintings he owned and collected and and how he commissioned so many of himself it's it's quite funny um at least 20 that we know of which was very unusual 
at the time, you know, to have so many commissions um, of himself. He was obviously very vain and um, very, very interested in, in his image. But um, I think it's really important to... Um, to emphasise that Elizabeth, you know, this idea about not not getting older in the paintings, yes, she mm-hmm. was vain. That, that is true, but it's not. This is not really about vanity. It's about it, um, Elizabeth as um, living forever. Um, the importance of uh, her staying young and beautiful, and and looking as though she's going to live forever, because people don't want to think about the succession. They don't want to think about a time when Elizabeth will die. So they want to, to look at her as if she's young. Um, also, right. there was a feeling at the time that, that youth and beauty were associated with goodness. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, there's, so really, there's all sorts of reasons for uh, Elizabeth um, having that youthful image. There's political reasons, I mean, not, not just right. about, about vanity. Right. No, it was important to the stability of the country and the strength of the country, certainly. Yeah. So, yeah. so now we've talked about all these marvelous paintings, and I know that the National Portrait Gallery is not open right now, but where can people go to see some of these? Yeah. So the National Portrait Gallery is due to be open in the spring. So. Right. Spring 2023, so it's not that long. And if you go there, you can see you, the best ones are there. You can see mm-hmm. the coronation portrait, the Darnley portrait, the Phoenix. Um, I think they no, they haven't got the Pelican. They got the Phoenix. Um, they got one of the Armada portraits. Got Ditchley. But then, and not only that, but you would also see they have a whole Tudor gallery. You would also see Mary Queen of Scots, Robert Dudley, Philip Sidney, Walsingham, even Shakespeare is there. Right. So that is number one. That's definitely number one. Windsor Castle has Elizabeth as a princess. And then, of course, Hatfield House has the rainbow portrait and the ermine portrait, which are very beautiful. And uh, there's a a little miniature of Elizabeth playing the lute at Barclay Castle. But the best place to go for miniatures is the V&A, Victoria and Albert. So they have a big collection there. All right. So we can all, if we're in the U.S., book our tickets, and then I'll just start planning now for my spring 2023 return to the National Portrait Gallery. Yeah, I can't wait to go back. It's been, it feels like it's been a long time. It feels like a long time. <laughs> yes. Now, <laughs> tell us um, just some of the, about the book. Where can we get it? Um, how do we get our hands on this gorgeous Gloriana? Elizabeth I and the Art of Queenship. So it is available online. Um, now, it, I think it can be pre-ordered on Amazon. I know it's the U.S. publication date is the 1st of January. Okay. But it can also be ordered from sources here and then shipped right. over if people, right. people want to get a hold of right. it. Right. <clears throat> And I'll just mention, I use Book Depository quite a bit when I can't wait for the U.S. release. And they're very good. So bookdepository.com. I know. I was just going to say that because, you know, clearly, you know, there's a lot more sources other than Amazon. Mm -hmm. And Book Depository, I understand, don't charge for shipping. Right. Right. So that would be the best place to go. Yeah. 
Right. And and some UK bookstores will ship as well. Um, Waterstones, yeah. I think, does. And so there are ways. Um, if you are like me living in the US and just unable to wait for the US publication, there are sources where we can get these. Or you can just plan a trip and go buy it yourself. All right. Well, tell us, Siobhan, this has been so fun. Tell us what you are working on now. What are some of the things that you are doing now? Oh, well, I'm I'm not actually writing at the moment. Um, We decided to take a rest because Linda and I, we did King Collector and then we then we did Gloriana straight away. Mm. We haven't we haven't had a break. Mm. And um, and I'm so busy right now with tours at Hampton Court Palace um which is great because we want people mm-hmm. to come to the palace lovely to mm-hmm. welcome everyone back so i'm very busy at the moment with my tours and i i work with alison weir as well um and we're, we're, we're quite busy we're, we're working on a few projects and great. just lectures and and yeah I'm, I'm i'm certainly definitely keeping busy but i haven't decided on what the next writing project will be Oh, well, we hope you keep us posted on that because I understand you need a break, but it's just so wonderful when you have something coming out. That's just so exciting to me. Now, if people wanted to learn about the tours um, at Hampton Court that you're giving, is there a website or a place they can go? Are you on social media? Is there a way to follow you or or learn more about Um, that? uh, Yeah, I've got a a website, which is the History Guides. So it's just www wthehistoryguides.com I share right. I share a website with um, some other historians and we do a few different things like um, mainly tours at Hampton Court but people can also when when the National Portrait Gallery opens again I do uh, sometimes take people to, to, to you know on a little tour of the Tudor Gallery at, at mm. the National Portrait Gallery and that's been quite popular so Great. that that might be something people might want to do when if they if they're coming over when the uh, when the NPG opens up again. Okay, that's great, and I will put that website in the show notes so that we can you know when we come over. And I always say when because we should all be coming over, but when we come over, we can um, book a tour of Hampton Court or when it opens the National Portrait Gallery, the Tudor portion of that. Well, thank you, Siobhan, so much. Thank you for this beautiful book. It is a treasure and I just can't stop reading it and looking at it. It's just so wonderful. If you don't have it yet, you will thank yourself for getting it. And it's wonderful to hear some of the, you know, behind the scenes thinking. I always love to hear what people are surprised by, like being surprised that Dudley was such an art collector. That can help us see him in a new light. And as you look at these paintings that we've seen before, it's just wonderful to be able to now know more about them and know how carefully curated Elizabeth's image was to project her magnificence and her royal power. And she was amazingly successful. We feel we know her in, I think, exactly the way she wanted us to. So it's really amazing to look at that over the rain and and through these images. So thank you, Siobhan, so much for joining us and sharing your expertise with us. Thank you. I think I think you summed it up beautifully. So thank you very much. 
thank you for being part of Season 3 of Royals, Rebels, and Romantics. I appreciate your joining us. Please consider subscribing, sharing with a friend, and leaving a rating. And we would love to welcome you to the Royals, Rebels, and Romantics patron family. I'm really looking forward to shaking up history with you.